It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I'm Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number two in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, February the 23rd. And first of all, we start out by talking to Paul Timmons, Global Director Microsoft at DXC Eclipse. He'll be talking to us all about what companies need to do to digitally transform themselves. And then I have a chat with economist Stephen Coolis. But first, let's talk to Paul Timmons. Now, uh, Paul Timmons, uh, tell us about uh, businesses undergoing a digital transformation. I mean, it's anything but simple. Uh, how do they plan the project? Look, I think the planning is the most important part, uh, Leon, and it is certainly going to ensure success because um, the plan is going to determine your, your whole approach. And when I say planning, it's, it's also planning for not just what you're looking at today and what you might be going to digitally transform or what you're thinking about digitally transforming, but you've also got to be thinking about, well, where is the business going? And where's the business going to be in 24 months, 36 months, even five years out? Because if you don't get that right up front with that planning, uh, you are going to be investing a lot of money that may not get you the promised benefits that you're hoping to get out of your digital transformation. Right. So what you're saying is you actually need to look not only at the business's current situation, 
but you need to look at its desired state. Would that be the right way of putting it? Yes, the desired state, because where you know where a lot of um, digital transformations go wrong and certainly don't uh, give the return on investment is where the, the transformation is, I guess, too big an approach. They're trying to get to too many outcomes. You know, it, one of the key parts, I think, about the planning part is is to break the, the digital transformation of the organisation down into bite-sized chunks. And the obvious thing then is that's going to highlight to you, well, where should we give our first focus of our digital transformation? And by that I mean what's going to give you your biggest return on investment and then also get you the quick wins that you require for the transformation to be successful because it is also about change management as well. But if you focus on the right area, let's just say you're a retail organisation, Leon, and, and currently, for whatever reasons, you don't have a very good customer relationship management system. Therefore, you don't know what the customers are doing, you don't know what they're buying, what they're potentially going to be buying in the future. So part of your digital transformation might be, well, firstly, we're going to put in a customer relationship management system so we understand what our customers are doing with us. Then you move on to other parts of all. Once we've got that on board, do we now need to look to an online uh, sales and, and purchasing system, et cetera, et cetera. But that's where the planning is very, very important. So you end up with successful goals at the end. So that's what you mean by looking at it in terms of chunks, sort of one bit at a time. Would that yes, be right? Yes, yeah. Because the reality is the digital transformation, you know, it's not about just going out and buying the latest cloud app or thinking that if we do a big ERP implementation, well, we'll digitally transform the organisation. As part of the planning process, you've got to look at your current systems and processes and determine, well, are they fit for purpose in terms of what we're trying to achieve as our outcomes? And there is where you've also got to look at, well, are they going to adopt, you know, are the systems and processes agile and are they going to adopt and grow with the organisation? And most importantly, do they address the challenges you've got in your business today? Because if you're addressing the challenges you've got today, you've got a lot more chance of addressing the ones that are going to come uh, down, down the path. And that's why that whole planning part is so essential to the success of the transformation. I see. I mean, the... But- uh, there are a whole lot of other considerations for if you want to map a digital journey path. For example, um, now businesses have to work in what would be a virtual environment, isn't it? Well, it's also virtual, This is, and this is where the transformation is going to take place, is during your transformational journey, you are going to be making decisions around, well, what's going to be your platforms for the future as well? And... In most organisations, as much as they might have the desire, and it could be one of their big goals to have everything in the cloud, most organisations aren't going to get there, particularly the bigger organisations. They will always have, as we like to coin it, the hybrid cloud environment where there's going to be core applications that they have and they house on their premise. And then they might have various cloud solutions. You know, I spoke to a CIO the other day who, within 24 months, He will have on-premise applications, but he will be using nine different cloud solutions to provide the services that that organisation uses, whether it be on Azure, whether it be on AWS, or whether it be just sourcing directly from uh, from a vendor, you know, like a Microsoft and running it off their Azure cloud. So it becomes very much a hybrid model, Leon. And, of course, uh, geographic location, time zones... Uh, stop becoming a barrier because businesses are work, working in that virtual environment. Well, that's the world we do live in now. Um, that virtual world means that any company that's got any sort of a global footprint 
has to be available 24 by 7. And that's, again, where, you know, in terms of environments like that, that's where the cloud is so unique because it gives you that agility and speed. It gives you reliability as, as the owner of that cloud. It gives security. It gives you productivity. And also, very important for a global business, gives you that global engagement and collaboration that you get from being on the same solid platform across the world on a global platform that's available 24 by 7. I'd imagine one of the issues that you're, you're seeing at DXC is that uh, there'd be a lot of challenges for businesses because to make a digital journey, they have to balance demands from uh, people, technology, from vendors. They have to look at business goals and they have to make all these work together. Yeah, and, and there's some, again, there's some critical ways that I think you need to address that. And the first one is, is any digital transformation needs to be viewed, I guess, very differently to uh, previous, I guess, what I'd call IT transformations. Because digital transformations engage the entire organisation. So the key thing is it needs to be viewed that it's not an IT project or it's not an IT solution. And if you're a company with a board, it needs to start at the board. The board needs to buy into what the transformation is going to be and support it 100%. If there's no board, well, then it drops down to the next level to the leadership team. They need to understand the project. They need to be across what's going to drive success. They need to be very clear on the direction it's going to take the company. And most importantly, at their level, they need to be very clear on what the overall goal of the transformation is and how that's going to enhance their business strategy moving forward. That engagement at that leadership level then helps drive uh, what I would call the change management through the entire organisation, that this isn't just, inverted commas, another IT project. This is a project that's going to transform our organisation into the new world and where we need to be uh, for the future success of the organisation. That doesn't get away from the complexities you're talking about, but it helps the entire organisation understand, well, this is how important this is. Because then what flows from that which comes back from having the clear objectives and the clear plan, is you need to really understand what are the business requirements of this transformation and also what flows from that, which is very important, is, well, what was the business case? And this, again, comes back to the support from the board or the leadership team, is they need to understand, well, what is the outcome we're trying to solve? Now, what is the real problem with our organisation today? And therefore, what are we trying to solve? It's a bit like asking the question of, well, what is the why? Why are we doing this? And if you understand that, you can then understand, well, what are the processes we need to change? What are the processes we need to improve? And that then drives you to then looking at technology because technology comes a long way down the path in determining and doing your planning for a digital transformation. You need to work out where's the part of the business you want to change first. You need to plan for that, work out what are the processes and issues with that, and then move forward. Unfortunately, that little simple process of fully understanding what the problem is, you know, answering the why question, is where a lot of companies do. It sounds very simple, but it is where a lot of companies do fail straight up. And what happens then is they get months into this big transformational project and they come back to a IT services company like DXC Technology and say, actually, we need to take a different path. And that means they've invested a lot of money that isn't giving them the right outcome. And to some degree, they've got to start again. Because the other critical part of this is developing that business case that gives you a return on investment. It highlights the uh, the breadth of benefits. It's where you also talk about well, what amount of change management are we going to need in this organisation? And then most importantly, what's our execution plan that's going to drive success of this transformational project? 
Those are very, very hard questions to answer, and they're very, very challenging, wouldn't they? Wouldn't that be? Well, not if not again if you understand your business. You know, the, the return on the investment is is in this day and age, it's twofold. Is you're going to get your your financial benefits, yeah, you know, and and they they normally you know, relatively easy to to, uh, to work out uh, because you know through any digital transformation you know there's there's two big things you're going to be wanting to drive out of it or you wouldn't do it is it's going to increase your revenue and it's going to decrease your costs. In some instances, though, the third variable sometimes though is if the company doesn't digitally transform, well, it literally just won't be around. Um, and we've seen you know many companies over the years that just don't exist today because they got overtaken with technology and transformation. Um, but the other key thing now that's very important in um, you know working out your return on investment, your ROI, is the non-financial benefits for the shareholders that come out of that. And some of them are tangible, some of them are intangible. And some of those benefits come from the simple fact of moving uh, to the cloud model. And that's where, again, it helps you decrease your costs. But the key thing about the, the uh, cloud model is not just about the savings you're going to make in your cost model. It does give you more agility. It does give you more speed to market. It does give you that reliability. Um, most importantly in this day and age, it gives you the top level of security on your critical systems. And then what flows from that is an increased productivity. Sometimes the increased productivity out of a cloud solution is hard to work out, and that's where it becomes more of it's more of an intangible, non-financial benefit, Leon. And, of course, uh, the beauty of doing it from the cloud is that people can do activities, uh, whether they're stakeholders, whether they're employees, customers, they can do those activities from anywhere. Yes, uh, and that is the, the key expectation uh, in today's world is, is twofold. One, if you're an employee, uh, you expect to be able to work anywhere, 24 by 7, and unfortunately, as a leader, I expect my people to be able to do that as well. But secondly, and that then goes into our personal lives, as a consumer, we expect to be able to go online 24 by 7 if we want to purchase something, whether it be a nice dress or a pair of shoes or a new book, we expect to have that access. And that is what the cloud provides, that if I go back, you know, even five years, on-premise solutions struggled to provide that because, you know, no matter how good a company's IT department is, that they have downtime. But in this day and age, you know, we all see the headlines as soon as, soon as a com banks down for two hours on a Friday afternoon or if, or if a retail chain is down, it is front page news because the expectation is, and this is where the cloud does provide this, is that you're up and running 24 by 7. Well, Paul, all of that is uh, fascinating challenges and uh, thank you very, very much for your time and uh, uh, hoping to uh, talk to you guys at DXC soon again. Thank you very much. Lovely, Leon. Great to chat to you and uh, I'd love to meet you in person someday. That would be fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Leon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now let's listen to economist Stephen Kakoulis. Well, Stephen Kakoulis... I have to ask you about this government's second tranche of tax cuts that they're determined to get through. What's your view about that? Yeah, look, everybody loves a tax cut. Um, so in a sense, they're an easy thing to sell because it does put money into the pockets of the business sector. They will either choose to um, uh, pay high dividends to shareholders or they'll invest a bit of it or they will... Um, uh, decide to 
use it as part of their uh, extra cash balances, reduce their debt with it. So we're not, not exactly sure what they'll do, and each business will, will do it themselves. However, it's important, however, uh, it's a lot of money. It's $65 billion over the next decade that these uh, company tax cuts are going to cost. So it is an awful lot of money. And the questions there are, uh, is there a better use of the money, $65 billion, Is it better use on infrastructure spending or on skills and education of our workforce when we're running into skill shortages, apparently, in different parts of the economy, or when we're running a budget deficit still, and it's only really on a wing and a prayer that we're going to get back to surplus in 2021, um, it would it be useful to sort of not use that money until or not give away tax cuts until we've got our budget well and truly entrenched in a surplus and we can afford to give them away. So, look, a lot of issues there. Um, as, as I said, who doesn't like a tax cut? Everybody does, but there is a cost of delivering them. Right. Okay. But, uh, I mean, your view about that then, I mean, this would obviously have an impact on the budget, would it not? Oh, indeed, and, that, and that's the that's the big question right now because the budget is looking a little better than uh, we than it was framed uh, because of this very high iron ore price, and I think partly because the uh, employment numbers that we've seen have been better than expected. So more people in jobs, they pay more income tax, and the budget's you know, slightly better. I wouldn't want to overstate it, but it's looking a little bit better. So that that's an important thing. So the the, the trajectory, Mr. Morrison, the treasurer, has been pretty confident in his wording that uh, the return to surplus in three years' time is still on track, and that's fine. Uh, but, we, gee, we know that all it takes is a slight disappointment in the good old iron ore price or coal prices dropping a little or even wages uh, undershooting a little bit on what Treasury is currently forecasting, and those surpluses that are pencilled in in a few years' time can very quickly turn back to deficits. So, again, it is a cost to the budget. There's no doubt that the budget... Uh, surpluses or will be smaller or the deficits will be bigger because of these company tax cuts. There's no question. Right, right. But uh, the issue is, could this actually affect Australia's AAA rating? At the margin, well, we do know that one of the rating agencies, good old Standard & Poor's, has Australia on a negative watch anyway. And they have been for a couple of years now and they've not, they've not acted on that negative watch because, as I said, there's some tentative signs that the budget is uh, a little... Uh, better than, than they're expecting. So they've, they've sort of taken a bit of a time out on their reassessment. If the budget numbers keep tracking the way that they are, then I don't think they'll act on that negative watch. And the AAA credit rating will be will be locked in. And I think that's a good thing that if we could if we could do that. But the, the risk is, as we just mentioned, if we get uh, something such as a slowdown in China impacting on our exports and our commodity prices, or as is getting, well, always gets lots of attention, you know, the housing market in Australia turns down and that has an impact on our economy and therefore employment and therefore revenue to the government that we do get that risk of the AAA rating coming under a bit more pressure. But for now, it still looks a low probability that the downgrade will occur, uh, but it doesn't take much in terms of a change in the way um, the economic parameters are unfolding for that to change very, very quickly. Right, right. Now, uh Obviously, uh, the market loved Trump's tax cuts. What impact would tax cuts have for the markets here? Yeah, well, it's a lot of money. What was it, trillion and a half dollars? I think it was the the combined right. tax packages from um, from the Trump administration. Absolutely huge amount of money being pumped into the U.S. economy. And while you know the stock market's been a bit uh, shaky in recent weeks. Um, uh, it's still very strong compared with with where we were a year or two ago. It's still very, very much uh, higher than that. But what's happening also is the market, 
over there is starting to have a look at the budget numbers and thinking, gosh, these these tax cuts that Trump has uh, has now legislated basically um, are, are unfunded. So the budget deficit in the US, which had started to narrow with the economy improving over the last few years, is all of a sudden blowing back out. And I think the budget deficit projections uh, are out to 5% of GDP, really big numbers, and US government debt's on track now to hit $100 billion. So this is where we're seeing the bond markets start to become very shaky. The, the 10-year US uh, bond yield is approaching 3% for the first time in, gosh, I think it's about 10 years. Um, and we've got the Federal Reserve uh, hiking rates and, and almost certainly hiking them three, possibly four more times during the course of this year. So that's causing the market to be a little shaky. So it is a sugar hit. As we mentioned before, anything any government delivers tax cuts, there's money into the economy, there's no question, but the offset could well be the higher budget deficit. That has implications for the bond market and it has implications for what the central bank does with official rates. So, in other words, these tax cuts, which will be delivered in the next budget, will see the budget turning out to be a market as well as a political and policy event. Oh, indeed. And, you know, again, we just have to look at the US uh, for a lead. And obviously, our... Um, tax cut proposals aren't as big um, as, as those delivered in the US. Uh, and, we, and our budget position is superior to the US. So we, we're starting off from a better better base. But, of course, the, the market will be probably looking at the budget and thinking that is there is there something there that's going to cause us to have more concern about the interest rate outlook or the level of debt. And particularly, of course, uh, this is an election year or it's due uh, by the early part of next year. So sometime in the next 12 months, approximately, we do have a federal election coming on. The government's well behind in the polls. We've got again got uh, Prime Minister Turnbull and Treasurer Scott Morrison talking income tax cuts to throw on top of the company tax cuts. And so budget night on the 8th of May in, uh, in uh, a couple of months' time will be more than just an accounting exercise, in my view. There might actually be some policy substance that will cause the markets to have a very good look at not only what those policies, what policy ideas are, but what they might mean for the economy, for interest rates and for the Aussie dollar. Now, the, the other issue too is, that, I mean, this is what worried me with the Trump tax cuts, was that it actually pumped a lot of money into the economy, which means, which pushes up inflation. What impact would tax yeah. cuts in Australia have on inflation here? Yeah, well, at the margin, they push it up because, of course, as we said, the, the stimulatory um, effects are, are clear. But at the moment, we've got very low inflation. Yeah, the US um, inflation rate is nearer to their target than we are to near our target. In fact, I think the RBA would be delighted to see a little bit of inflation come through. But, it, well, that, but in terms of our tax cuts, the other thing to remember about our tax cuts is they're phased in over the next, uh, the next decade. Uh, right. the, the, the Trump tax cuts were a big bang sort of approach. Here they are, they're delivered now, and here they are. Ours, as we've been saying, and I think as you implied in your earlier question, they're in tranches. That It's first of all the smaller companies and the middle-sized companies uh, that are getting it that's rolled out to, to all companies at the end of the uh, process. Uh, and the cut from 30 to 25% on, on profits is actually phased in as well. So there's a our, our, our tax cuts will have a very what do we call it, a very gentle approach and a very gentle impact on the economy. So uh, there's nothing yet to be too scared about. Now, uh, what impact will this have on government debt? Well, uh, our government debt levels are still increasing. We're still running budget deficits. Uh, not that we hear much about that anymore, but we know that gross government debt's now around about $520 billion. It's um, uh, on track to hit $700 billion in the next decade. And uh, these tax uh, cuts 
both the company and the proposed or the possible income tax cuts are simply adding to debt. It's a bit by definition. If the government's not collecting the money, um, it's going to add to government debt uh, other than it otherwise would have been. So, again, my, my thoughts are that it would be nice to have a couple of years of budget surplus locked in before we started seriously talking about uh, company tax cuts, tax cuts because that's and income tax cuts because that's only when you can afford them. At the moment, we're running the risk of giving these tax cuts and then finding out that the economy might be weaker and we'll have to borrow the money to fund them. And, of course, uh, the Labor Party opposition will argue that the money should be used to fund, uh, uh, should be spent elsewhere and because uh, yes. uh, in areas like education and health. So <laughs> it will be up to the electorate to determine which side of this debate will attract their vote. Ah, very much so. And I think, I think this is where I think you've uh, captured the political... Uh, debate that we're going to be seeing during the course of this year as the election date draws nearer and nearer is that the Labor Party, yes, indeed, they'll be sort of saying that, you know, this money at a time when we've got an ageing population, when we do have, um, you know, the risk of skill shortages emerging, should that money be used to make sure that our society is healthy and that the workers, the workforce, the 12.5 million of us, have the required skills to deal with this you know, rapidly evolving technological change, you know, international competitiveness. And uh, they'll be arguing, I think, and in fact I'm pretty sure, that that money would be better used to make sure that our education and health systems are much better. So we've got a political debate coming up, tax cuts versus uh, extra spending on health and education. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. Well, Stephen Coolis, that's going to be a fascinating debate to watch, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Leon. Thank you, Stephen. So what's been happening in the news? Well, Australian consumer confidence fell for the second straight week as sentiment dimmed towards household finances and the broader economy. The ANZ Roy Moore consumer confidence fell by 3.5% to 115.6%. That followed the 2.6% drop last week. Views towards economic conditions over the next 12 months slumped by another 5.5% after last week's 6% fall, leaving the measure at an eight-week low of 107 There was an even sharper 8.8% fall in sentiment towards economic prospects over the next five years. On the other hand, after years of record low growth, Australian wages have picked up, growing by 0.6% in the last quarter. The latest figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics show that wages grew by 2.1% on a seasonally adjusted basis. Now, that was a good sign. Wages, though, however, are barely staying ahead of inflation, which sits at 1.9%. Nevertheless, it's a sign of a growing job market. On the other hand, the data shows the lift came largely from public sector wages, which grew by 2.4%. And that was in stark contrast to private sector wages, which grew at 1.9%. Now, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has identified bigger fines for big business and competition issues in the banking sector among its compliance and enforcement priorities for 2018. ACCC Chairman Rod Sims said the ACCC will focus on general competition issues for banks after it releases its final report into mortgage pricing. The Productivity Commission's draft report on competition in the Australian financial system, released earlier this month, identified competition issues including lack of choice that merchants have in payment systems and insufficient data sharing regimes that make it difficult for consumers to switch from one provider to another. 
Mr Sims said the Productivity Commission's draft report had identified many issues for the ACCC to consider further. The ACCC will be looking at tougher penalties in competition law cases when Parliament has increased the penalty for consumer breaches by a company from $1.1 million to $10 million, or 10% of turnover, and fines for individuals have increased from $220,000 to $500,000. The ACCC also comes into 2018 with a new misuse of market power, and that bans businesses from engaging in conduct that will have the, quote, purpose, effect or likely effect, unquote, of reducing competition. And it has new concerted practices provisions banning businesses from engaging in communication or cooperative behaviour to reduce competition. So the ACCC is cracking down on non-competitive behaviour from banks and business. So watch that space. Now, after posting a $1.65 billion profit, the National Australia Bank is planning to make 1,000 positions redundant every six months as part of a plan to cut a total of 6,000 jobs over three years while bolstering its workforce with 2,000 technology specialists. NAB says it wants to reduce its layers in complexity so that it can be more responsive and closer to its customers. Now, Solomon Liu has written to my shareholders as he tries to oust its board and he's warned them that the retailer could soon stop paying dividends. Lou launched an unprecedented attack on my executive chairman Gary Hounsell, describing him as, quote, incompetent and, quote, discredited. And in another letter aimed at garnering support from shareholders to overthrow the board, uh, Lou said, that Meyer was in peril and its failed board and discredited chairman needed to be removed. Now, Premier has now received an updated copy of Meyer's share register and will work with Meyer shareholders to ask the, ask the current board at an extraordinary general meeting and it will formulate a new board comprised of a majority of independent directors. Now, this was Lou's second attack on the department store. Now, Lou owns 10.8% of Meyer through Premier Investments. And in his attack on Hounsell, the chairman. He said Hounsell's track record of Meyer was woeful. He said Hounsell had backed former Chief Executive Richard Umber's new Meyer strategy before he'd spent any time with Mr Umber's or properly reviewed the strategy. He said he'd wound back management performance targets, overseen two significant profit downgrades and, quote, repeatedly lied to and misled shareholders, end quote. Now, Australia's largest not-for-profit health fund, HCF, and Western Australia's HBF have confirmed they're considering a merger. HBF and HCF released a statement on Monday saying they're planning a merger which would deliver the combined group market share of about 18.4%. And the proposed fund would provide members of both funds the benefits of scale required to compete with the bigger private health insurers. Now, if a marriage is consummated, it will create a third dominant force in the private health sector behind Bupa and ASX-listed Medibank Private. And the profit reporting season continues. Here are some of the latest company profits. BHP Billiton posted a 25% jump in underlying profit to US $4.1 billion for the first half of fiscal 2018. West Farmer's bottom line net profit slumped 86.6% to $212 million in December after the conglomerate booked $1.3 billion in write-downs on Bunnings UK and Ireland and Target. Fairfax Media brought in revenue of $877.1 million for the first half of 2018, but their net profit after tax came in at $38.5 million. That's down 54% on the $83.7 million it made in the previous corresponding period. Real estate business Domain posted a $3.4 million statutory first half loss 
in its first earnings results since splitting off from Fairfax. Beach Energy reported 5% gain in core net profit for the first half, but the bottom line was hit by costs with the $1.585 billion acquisition of Lattice Energy, and that affected the bottom line by 7%. Bramble's half-year profit more than tripled to US $447.2 million, with sales growth driven by volume increases in North America, Latin America and Europe. Online jobs portal Seek Limited reported a 27% jump in sales revenue, lifting its half-year net profit 21% to $102 million. All Media boosted its full-year profit by 35.5% to $33.2 million. The lift was powered by strong organic growth and the previous year's acquisition. Wind power producer Infogen reported 25% jump in net profit for the first half to $26.7 million. Insurer NIB's half-year profit dropped 9.2% to $66.3 million due to the growth in private patients getting medical care in public hospitals. Cash Converters announced an 18% fall in first-half earnings to $9.4 million on a 12.6% drop in revenue to $122.9 million. Seven West's median net profit for the six months to December totaled $100.7 million. Now, that's a lot higher than the $12.4 million in the previous corresponding period. But the top-line number was favourable because of a write-down on the value of its Yahoo 7 business, existing streaming service Presto, and the sale of some magazines and Sky News in the previous comparable period. Australia's fourth biggest telecom operator, Vocus Group, their first half underlying net profit fell 25% to $68.6 million. Super Retail Group reported a 3% fall in December half net profit to $72.2 million. Interest-free finance specialist Flexi Group swung to an interim net loss of $50 million. That's down from a $47.7 million profit the year before. Monodelphus interim net profit jumped 30% to $38.262 million, up from $29.372 million. Q Energy Resources posted a profit for the six months to December of $3.4 million, compared with a loss of $11.9 million a year ago. Papua New Guinea-focused oil search more than trebled full-year net profit to $302.1 million. Godfrey's group net loss for the half-year ended December 29, widened to $58.6 million. That's much wider than the $21.7 million loss a year ago. Retail, retailer Temple and Webster delivered a net loss for the December half of 890000 although that narrowed from the loss of $5.4 million the previous year. Operator of Lifestyle Communities, communities Ingenia reported a surge in net profit for the December half to $17.1 million from $7.6 million a year ago. Owner of Dental Facilities 1300 Smiles said net profit for the six months to December rose 4% to $3.9 million. A2 Milk's net profit for the six months to December more than doubled to New Zealand $98.47 million. Lendley's reported $425.7 million profit for the first half year, up 7.8% from the $394.5 million profit, the previous corresponding period. Coca-Cola Emetal's interim underlying net profit fell 0.4% to $416.2 million. Fortescue Metals delivered a better-than-expected U.S. $681 million half-year profit. Oil and gas producer Santos posted a U.S. $360 million bottom-line loss, which was an improvement, I must say, on the previous year's $1.05 billion U.S. loss. And that's it from Talking Business this week. Looking forward to bringing you all the business news next week. You can tune in to us if you go to Facebook or you can go to us on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-I-Z-Z. Looking forward to bring you the news next week. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 